The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Revolutionizing the Standard of NF1 Care. Insights on innovative MEK inhibitor options for NF1-associated PNs. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YBF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to this session where we'll be describing some very exciting changes that have occurred recently in the care of individuals with neurofibromatosis type 1. My name is Bruce Korf. I'm a medical geneticist, associate dean for genomic medicine at University of Alabama at Birmingham with a long-standing interest in neurofibromatosis. Joined here by Dr. Miriam Bornhorst, and I'll let her introduce herself. Yeah, I'm um, Dr. Bornhorst. I'm the clinical director of the Gilbert Neurofibromatosis Clinic at um, Washington, D.C., D.C. Children's, um, and also the medical director of our cancer predisposition program there. So I'm a neuro-oncologist and also very interested in NF1. Well, on to the details of, of where we're going today. Um, so this will consist of um, lectures by each of us and then a couple of case um, sort of practicum sessions. And so our goal here is to review what's um, known currently about the standard of care in individuals with neurofibromatosis type 1 and the tumors that they are at risk for. And then we'll um, move into um, the emergence of um, MEK inhibitor therapy, uh, which is really changing the landscape of, of how we manage neurofibromatosis type 1. And then you'll be hearing a couple of um, cases just to illustrate some of the points that we'll be making. So I have already introduced myself, and let me go straight into it. So the focus here today is neurofibromatosis type 1. You might have at one point um, learned of it as von Recklinghausen disease. Um, it has a, a frequency of about 1 in 3,000, and that's true around the world. No particular area seems to have a higher or lower frequency, as best we can tell. It's a classic dominant genetic trait um, with complete penetrance, which means that anybody with a germline pathogenic variant will express the phenotype. It does not skip generations. However, the phenotype is highly variable. That's even true within a family, and it's certainly true from family to family. We'll talk a little later about some of the evidence of genotype-phenotype correlations, which are only just a few. About half of cases are due to new mutation that occurs sporadically, illustrated by the pedigree over here, uh, where you have a child who is affected, but neither parent is affected. Given the complete penetrance, this can be attributed to new mutation. There's a, a rare um, incidence of germline mosaicism, so it's not impossible for the parents to have another affected child, but it's really um, very rare, whereas a person affected, of course, has a 50% chance of transmission uh, from generation to generation. The NF1 gene has been known for a long time, actually, since 1990. It's a pretty big gene, as genes go, located on chromosome 17. It encodes a protein that is called neurofibromin because of its discovery in the context of neurofibromatosis. It functions, and you'll hear more about this as we go along, as a tumor suppressor gene and a negative regulator of the RAS protein. Uh, there is genetic testing available. I'll speak a bit more about that later on, and as already alluded to, some, but only a few, genotype-phenotype correlations. Now, NF1 remains a clinical diagnosis, in spite of the ability to do genetic testing, and these diagnostic criteria were originally set down in 1987 uh, by an NIH consensus conference, and they were just updated about a year ago, and at the very bottom of the slide is a reference to the paper that describes the updated criteria. So for a person who does not have an affected parent, this would be a, usually a sporadically affected child, uh, two or more of the criteria on this list need to be fulfilled. Now, rather than read them to you, I'll show you some illustrations in just a moment. But I do want to highlight the changes that have occurred in the new criteria. Um, first, in addition to iris lish nodules, say more about those in a moment, Choroidal abnormalities have been added as a possible um, diagnostic criterion, meaning either Lish nodules or choroidal abnormalities. And realizing now that genetic testing is pretty routinely available, a pathogenic NF1 variant counts as one diagnostic criterion. And that, of course, raises the issue 
of um, using genetic testing, which can be helpful in a child, say, who presents just with multiple cafe au lait spots. It's not required to do genetic testing to make a diagnosis, but sometimes it's helpful. Now, if a child has an affected parent because there's an a priori 50% chance of inheritance, then only one criterion needs to be met beyond that family history. So cafe au lait spots usually are the presenting sign in childhood. They appear in the first few months of life. Usually by about age two, there are as many as will occur, six or more bigger than five millimeters before puberty, 15 millimeters after puberty. And then skinfold freckling very often is the second feature that establishes the diagnosis. Um, most of the time in the inguinal regions first, between about three and five years of age, Eventually, in the axillary region, you can see them at the base of the neck in this picture. Now, cafe lay spots plus skinfold freckling fulfills two diagnostic criteria, so it makes a diagnosis of NF1, except that there is another condition called Legia syndrome associated with a mutation in a gene in the same pathway as NF1 um, called SPREAD1, and that is one instance where genetic testing can be very important to distinguish the two because you don't see the tumors of NF1 in Legis syndrome. Of course, the hallmark feature are neurofibromas, and they can vary from just a few to uh, more than you could possibly count, as you can see. And they can also occur either as um, relatively flat um, growths that are probably really more under the skin than on the skin. And um, this picture to the upper left not the easiest mouse to handle, um, is an example I probably won't try to point, but in the upper left you can see where the, there's a sort of violaceous hue around this area, and it, it has the, the feeling almost as a kind of a buttonhole in the skin. Of course, then they can be pedunculated, as you can see in the picture on the right, and um, you can actually see them in younger children, although puberty is the time when these begin to appear in serious numbers. Uh, younger children, if you look with side lighting, you can sometimes see them, and that's what's illustrated to the lower left. These occur besides in puberty, by the way, in women during pregnancy, but over the years, it's unpredictable how many will occur. Some people don't get very many. Some people are really covered with them. Now, beyond this, there are plexiform neurofibromas, which are neurofibromas that we think mostly begin congenitally and um, then mostly appear, at least if on the surface, within the early months of life, um, although they can be internal where there'll be no external signs. Uh, they often are associated with a hyperpigmentation, which is congenital, best seen in the, um, the picture second from the right and the top, uh, where you have this kind of speckling um, kind of borders and then a confluent hyperpigmentation. It's not a cafe au lait spot. It is a congenital pigmentation, and it often tells you that there's an underlying plexiform neurofibroma. You can see also, both in that picture and the one on the far left, the invasion of the skin. Uh, the skin is sort of hyperpigmented and roughened. Uh, you can see in the MRI scan, um, second from the left, uh, the involvement of multiple uh, nerves in the cervical plexus. On the far right on the upper panel, you can see the characteristic target sign on MRI where you have this kind of dark center and then surrounded by bright um, tissue. And then you can, in the pictures at the bottom on the left, see the, an example where the sciatic nerve is affected and it really more or less tracks right along that. And you can see the soft tissue overgrowth both there and in the uh, picture on the arm at the top. And then finally on the right, an example of an orbital plexiform neurofibroma that affects the upper eyelid and can also affect um, tissues in the orbit and sometimes is associated with a defect of the greater wing of the sphenoid. I mentioned ocular manifestations. They include iris lish nodules, shown on the far left. These are hamartomas of melanocytic origin. They require a slit lamp to be reliably distinguished from iris nevi, which are not associated with NF1. And these are harmless to vision, but are useful as diagnostic markers, mostly visible by about six years of age. Choroidal abnormalities just recently added. This is a picture um, pulled from a paper that's referenced at the bottom. That requires um, a careful ophthalmologic exam and um, has also, as I understand it, no major impact on vision. We'll talk lots about optic glioma, so I'll just say for the moment, either orbital optic glioma shown to the left and um, chiasmatic optic glioma on the right um, 
are considered diagnostic criteria, and we'll get into the management later on. Characteristic skeletal dysplasia includes long bone dysplasia, in this case, both of the tibia and the fibula. You can see the curvature in the um, child's leg on the right. This is usually visible within the first year or so of life, and when it occurs, that bone is very fragile and prone to fracture, and typically we place the, the leg in a brace to prevent that, um, because if fracture occurs, it can be very difficult to achieve healing, leading sometimes to pseudoarthrosis. Variety of other complications to think about. Um, children with NF1 are often shorter than other members of the family. Uh, they tend to have large head size, either absolute macrocephaly or relative to their height, um, usually not associated with other neurologic problems. Small proportion of aqueductal stenosis, though. Scoliosis, relatively common. Not that many require surgical treatment, but appreciable number do. Sometimes you'll see an associated paraspinal plexiform neurofibroma, oftentimes not. And it tends to be, as shown in these uh, CT scans, uh, very sharply angulated, which is distinctive uh, for NF1. There is some increased frequency of seizures in NF1, and certainly it would um, be a reasonable indication for imaging, although you don't usually find tumors associated with these seizures. Um, they may be more uh, microscopic dysplasias, but nonetheless, it would be important to be sure of that. And headaches are more common than in the general population. I find they often have a sort of migraine-like signature. Um, they, of course, could be a sign of increased pressure and, and a tumor, although more often than not, uh, that isn't what we find. Vascular complications, important to recognize, unfortunately not very common. A small proportion have cardiovascular anomalies, particularly pulmonic stenosis. Hypertension is important to look for at any age. In children, it may be due to renal artery stenosis, um, illustrated at the top, uh, where there's actually a little renal artery aneurysm on the left kidney, um, or the right kidney left on the picture. Um, pheochromocytoma, not common, but important to recognize, and with the classic indications of, of um, hypertension, tachycardia, flushing, and so forth. And then essential hypertension is a relatively common form of hypertension in NF1. There is also a potential for cerebral vasculopathy with um, internal carotid stenoses can lead to a moya-moya syndrome and um, in incidence of stroke. It was very common, almost universal, in the days when opticliomas were irradiated, but can occur in the absence of any other treatment. One of the most common aspects of the phenotype is neurocognitive dysfunction. As you can see, 30 to 65%. Um, a small proportion will have IQs that are um, kind of on the low side. And you can see on this, um, this figure, the IQ curves, and this is from a study done by Kathy North a while back now, um, have a, a bimodal peak, one at the um, kind of population average, one shifted to the left, the green, on that slide are individuals superimposed on her data who have um, a particular mutation where the whole NF1 gene is deleted. They tend to be um, more intellectually disabled. Learning disabilities of various forms, visual spatial problems, executive dysfunction, high frequency of attention deficit disorder. A lot of children wind up um, with difficulties in school. They also have um, problems with social interactions and um, that includes things that are related to physical appearance, uh, if they have obvious plexiform neurofibromas, but can also include um, things that are really just sort of traits that are um, part of their kind of personality, I guess. And then on top of that, a um, increased frequency of autism spectrum disorder or um, manifestations that are along the autism spectrum. Well, NF1 is fundamentally a tumor predisposition syndrome with all of that. There is an increased risk of malignancy, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor between about 8 and 13% over a lifetime. And in addition, CNS gliomas, usually pilocytic astrocytomas that are low-grade, um, upwards of 20%, and high-grade are less common, fortunately, but do occur. Juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia is associated with NF1, and then more rarely, rhabdomyosarcoma, I've already mentioned pheochromocytoma, gastrointestinal stromal tumors. And it's been learned that women with NF1 are at increased risk of breast cancer, which um, has led to the recommendation of mammography beginning at age 30. In terms of surveillance for 
children with NF1. We generally recommend once a year review by a clinician who's familiar with the condition. Major issue is monitoring for optic pathway glioma, about which we'll say more in a minute, but for now, there's a debate, which I'm sure will be forever, of whether um, MRI or ophthalmologic assessment should be the mainstay of screening. The consensus recommendations say not to be doing MRI scans except for clinical indications and to rely on ophthalmological assessments, um, which are recommended to be done yearly, as you can see, until 8 and then every other year till about 18. If a plexiform neurofibroma is recognized, um, to be monitoring that, and MRI is used on a clinical basis. Monitoring for malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor, about which you'll hear more. The history, looking for unexplained pain, sudden growth of a tumor, a change from soft to firm in consistency, using imaging as clinically indicated, and fluorodeoxyglucose PET can be helpful for lesions that are showing signs that suggest malignancy. Whole body MRI is, is increasingly available and probably over time will have a place, particularly as, as the treatment armamentarium increases. I don't think it's something that's um, standard of care at this moment. There are practice guidelines that were published about, what, three years ago, I think now, um, a joint effort of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. And much of what I said a moment ago uh, comes from that. Genetic testing is now quite widely available. It is especially useful in the child with multiple cafe au lait spots, um, where if you wait long enough, the, usually the diagnosis declares itself. But as I mentioned earlier, distinguishing NF1 from Legius syndrome is really only possible by genetic testing in a young child. Now, the presence of any tumors would automatically push you towards NF1, but if all you see are, are the cutaneous um, pigmentary manifestations, that um, really is an indication for considering genetic testing. There are many people who meet only a single clinical criterion, and um, we have found that multiple spinal neurofibromas without other major cutaneous manifestations sometimes can be associated with NF1 tumor, so-called spinal NF. And of course, genetic testing is helpful for genetic counseling and family planning purposes. There are limited genotype-phenotype correlations. There are over 3,000 different pathogenic variants that have been identified in the NF1 gene, and most of them don't predict anything about severity or particular complications. They're mostly loss-of-function variants. There are a few exceptions. Large deletions, I already alluded to, cause intellectual disability, a high burden of tumors, unusual physical appearance, tall stature, which is not what we usually see in NF1, and we now know an increased risk of malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor. Uh, there are several other genotype-phenotype correlations on this slide. I don't think I'll read you th um, every one of them. Uh, the main point to make is that there are pretty few, actually, when you consider 3,000 mutations, and these are the only ones where we have established genotype-phenotype correlations. One that's interesting is the fourth one down. It's this three-base deletion that deletes a methionine from the protein, and those individuals have a mild presentation with a lack of tumors, um, although they do get learning disabilities. And why that is is actually understudied but not known. All right, word about tumors. Knowing the gene, actually it was probably weeks after the gene was discovered that it became clear that the protein functions as a um, GTPase activating protein. So when a growth factor binds to a cell membrane receptor, it causes RAS which is a membrane-bound protein to be bound with GTP, which activates it and sends signals down several different pathways that you can see shown here. And um, NF1 encodes this um, gap protein, which stimulates the conversion of the RAS GTP to the inactive form GDP. So you can imagine missing your neurofibromin would cause RAS to get stuck in this activated form, leading to promiscuous cell proliferation, among other things. We know now that NF1 functions as a tumor suppressor, so here it focuses on a Schwann cell, would be true of any cell in the body, begins at, with a germline mutation, which is the minus in this NF1 plus minus, but the other is an intact copy of the NF1 gene. We know that in Schwann cells and neurofibromas, both copies of NF1 are mutated, so there's a second somatic mutation, 
And that's the evidence that NF1 is a tumor suppressor. And then there is signaling to other cells which actually comprise the tumor. And in fact, if you look at plexiform neurofibromas, they're complex tumors with um, a variety of cell types, axons, Schwann cells, fibroblasts, perineural neural cells, mast cells, and other materials. So they're complex multicellular tumors where the Schwann cells are the true tumor cell. And plexiform neurofibromas are not rare, upwards of 50% of individuals, sometimes um, visible on the surface, other times requires imaging. If you look at them from a molecular point of view, the cutaneous neurofibromas show only loss of NF1, and that's about it. And the same is true of plexiform neurofibromas. There are so-called atypical neurofibromas, which in addition have CDKN2A variants, and then to get to malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor, as is true for most malignancies, an accumulation of many other genetic variants. Plexiform neurofibromas can cause significant complications, um, pain, disfigurement, abnormal function, and occasionally life-threatening compression of the trachea or spinal cord, and they seem to be the kind of um, precursor to the malignancies. Gliomas include um, optic pathway gliomas, um, which are usually childhood tumors that can affect the the optic nerve on either or both sides, the chiasm and the optic radiations, but there can be other sites for NF-associated gliomas. And usually in childhood, they're low-grade pilocytic astrocytomas. Later on, they can be more aggressive. It's really not easy to make decisions about um, treatment in optic gliomas. They are usually early onset. It's really critical to be following the ophthalmologic exam, which often doesn't correlate with MRI changes. Um, Most don't need to be treated at all, and it's not so easy to figure out in advance which do. Um, And there's a lot of work going on trying to look at natural history and prognostic factors, and you'll hear more about therapy. This is a pretty complicated algorithm. I'll just tell you very quickly, on the left are clinical indications on the right are treatments, and in the middle are things that might push you more or less towards treatment. So a child with a newly discovered tumor with reliable visual exam, stable vision, um, intact vision, surveillance is generally recommended. If you are beginning to see concerning signs ophthalmologically, at least increased vigilance, And then as you start seeing documented visual impairment, either considering or depending on the the degree, um, doing treatment with mitigating or exacerbating factors having to do with the reliability of the exam, the degree of aggressive tumor growth imaging-wise. So it is a team decision and a complex one. The malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors um, can occur usually in pre-existing either atypical or plexiform neurofibromas. Their prognosis has not been good, and you'll hear later about some of the the developments in treatment. Um, These are soft tissue sarcomas, usually signaled by pain, sudden growth, change in texture. And I am going to turn it over now to Dr. Bornhorst. Um, So I'm going to be talking a little bit about treatments now, treatment landscape for NF1. What are some of the new things that are out there? um, And what are some of the old things that we're still um, doing or um, including in our management? So this slide is a a good summary of what we think of um, for the current treatment options for patients who have the plexiform neurofibromas. Surgery is one that's been there for many, many, many years, um, and for a long time, surgery was the only option for patients. Um, Resection is usually limited depending on where the tumor is. Uh, If you remember what Dr. Korf was saying, these tumors oftentimes wrap around the nerves. They can be very difficult to um, take out completely, and so oftentimes what happens is you'll get a partial resection, the tumor will continue growing, and then it goes back to its original size, and it feels like um, nothing really happened or came from that. Um, there's also, of course, the, um, the p- potential that you could have complications from the surgery affecting nerve function, um, especially if you have something, for example, that's affecting your leg or your spine, um, you could have potentially long-term complications from that. Um, so surgery is something definitely that's still available, uh, but something that we um, want to make sure that we're considering the uh, pros versus cons or the risks versus benefits. Radiation therapy really is not used anymore for plexiform neurofibromas. It's um, thought to be associated with an increased risk of malignancy, and it really just doesn't work very well. So that's not something that's um, generally uh, considered anymore unless you have to. Um, and then drug therapies for plexiform neurofibromas. So chemotherapy had been tried in the past, doesn't really work very well. Um, And there's also that thought too that we might be um, 
causing malignancies by giving chemotherapy, so we don't generally use this. Um, but molecularly targeted agents are becoming more and more common, uh, and this is what we're going to focus on mostly today. Um, there was the approval of the um, Costalugomec inhibitor, which we will be talking about um, during the presentation, uh, but there are many other agents we'll be discussing. Um, I just need to mention that a lot of them are uh, still considered to be experimental just because they haven't been FDA approved. So one of the um, first um, molecularly targeted agents that actually showed some benefit in plexiform neurofibromas is uh, cabozatinib. And this is just showing a summary of the trial that was done looking at this particular agent. So this is a multiple um, receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So if you remember from the picture that Dr. Korf showed, um, there's a, at the very top of the cell membrane, there's a um, receptor tyrosine kinase where the signal hits and then it goes into the cell and goes down those multiple different pathways. And so if you inhibit that signal from going into the cell in the first place that might actually keep those cells from overgrowing um, and slowing down that hyperactive um, pathway. Uh, it does target the tumor microenvironment as well, which is important because we know that these tumors are heavily um, uh, infiltrated with all sorts of different types of immune cells. Um, and so this is another benefit of this treatment. Uh, in this study, the, the primary objective was um, greater than 20% reduction in volume. And you can see on there that response rate was about 42%. So eight of the 19 patients did have that response. Um, and I think that in general, it was fairly well tolerated, uh, but you can definitely get some um, side effects from it, including a, a palmar plantar erythrodesisia, which can be really, really bad, um, blistering and peeling of the hands or the, um, the palms of the hands and the feet. Uh, so there is a preventative uh, type of a treatment that you can use for that. Um, and then you can also see anorexia, vomiting, um, GI um, stuff with this, as well as neutropenia. Uh, now looking at MEK inhibitors, which is one of the next molecular agents that we looked at. So this is showing that pathway here. Um, so you can see uh, if you have NF1 loss, this is the RASMAP kinase pathway, which is upregulated. And what happens here is the MEK inhibitor comes in around this location. So receptor tyrosine kinase, the cabazot um, was here, but this is actually targeting more down here. So the signal gets into the cell, but it's stopped before it can actually get to the nucleus and cause those cells to um, grow. And this is just a, a list of the different MEK inhibitors that are being looked at right now. So salumetinib is um, one of the, the first MEK inhibitors that was looked at for NF1-associated plexiform neurofibromas. This is the phase one trial, um, just showing eligibility here. You can see that it uh, really focused on young children because this is when they tend to grow um, and can cause a lot of problems. Um, so we, they looked from three to 18 years of age. Um, and everybody who was treated had to have what was considered an inoperable high-risk plexiform neurofibroma, meaning that um, there was a potential for morbidity and or um, definite morbidity. Um, associated with it. Uh, it's given twice daily. They use three different dose levels, 20 to 30 milligrams. So there was a 20, 25, and a 30 milligram um, level. And then they also looked at response that greater than 20% decrease. So overall, it was well tolerated. Um, at that point, we did use CK elevation as a dose-limiting toxicity. It's not really used anymore. We found that unless it's associated weakness, um, the CK elevation is not generally problematic. Um, we also, of course, had to hold for um, cardiac um, uh, decrease, so the um, EF uh, decrease in some of our patients. Um, and then you can also see pretty significant acneform rashes, um, some GI toxicity. This is just showing what the response rates look like. So you can see that with all the different dose levels, there was a response. Um, and so they just sort of took the middle ground, the 25 milligrams per meter squared, um, which was considered then to be the, um, the dose that went on to the phase two trial. So now looking at the phase two trial, so we have our dose and we know the medication works, so we want to see how well it works and if there's any other benefits that we weren't able to get in um, the other study looking just at volume. So this one looked not only at the volume um, changes in the um, treatment, but it also looked at secondary endpoints, which included functional parameters, um, PROs, tolerability, um, basically how well do patients actually tolerate this med. Um, so focusing on that 25 milligram per meter squared dose, um, the patients would take it twice a day as well, um, and then they would come in for evaluations. And this just sort of shows the functional evaluations that they had done depending on where the tumor was. So it was pretty extensive. Um, the airway PNs, for example, they had a sleep study, pulmonary function tests, um, as well as some endurance tests. And you can see some of the other functional evaluations on here. So we definitely wanted to see how um, the patients were responding. 
Um, so this is the enrollment information here. There were 50 patients enrolled total, um, and the median age was around 10 years of age, but you can see it did go down to three and a half and it went up to about 17 and a half. Um, it was a, a similar male-female um, ratio, a little bit more on the male side. Um, and then you can see too, there was a very uh, significant um, range in the target volume. The, the median was around 487, but they went from five up to over 3,000 um, mLs, which is a pretty large tumor. Um, and then this also shows um, sort of how many of these patients had progression at baseline versus those that did not, as well as the um, morbidities. So the median number of morbidities was three, but it went up to five. So this is showing now the response from the selumetinib. Um, looking here, um, so you again, um, this is showing sort of what that 20% that partial response rate is, and so anybody who hit at least here had what was considered to be a partial response. Um, so you can see there's actually a pretty good um, partial response rate here. Um, so it's showing here at 74%, um, and as with the phase one study, the most commonly reported um, side effects were nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, you also saw again that CK elevation, which is generally asymptomatic, acniform rash and then um, paronychia is also something that came to light a little bit more here. It is definitely something we see with this treatment. Um, now this is looking a little bit at the functional um, outcomes. So not only do we see the tumor volume decrease, but we also see improvement in function or no change. Um, so if you have baseline, not a lot of functional deficits, then some of those patients didn't have significant change. But for a lot of our patients, we saw um, improvement in a number of different things. So improvement in pain, improvement in movement, um, even improvement in the disfigurement. So you can see here, um, there's a bulge, and now it's actually going away. Um, Dr. Korf had showed you the hyperpigmentation that comes with a lot of these plexiforms. That actually goes away on treatment, so you don't see that anymore. And for a lot of patients, that's a big thing. When you have a huge... Um, um, birthmark that covers your entire arm and that disappears, um, it does help uh, with quality of life. I think one of the things that we did uh, learn, though, from this treatment, and this is actually from the phase one study, not the phase two study, but we're seeing something similar, is that when you're on the treatment, it works really well, but when you come off the treatment, sometimes you can see um, regrowth of the tumor. And so one of the things that we definitely haven't quite figured out yet and is um, to be determined is when do you stop this treatment and how do you decide when to stop the treatment? And I think this just goes to show that sometimes um, we're stopping a little bit too early early, um, perhaps, or um, we're maybe not coming up with the best way to stop. So you can see here this patient stopped or had um, basically the cellulite was started, had a really good decrease in their tumor size, um, but then they had a hold for, L, um, for ejection fraction decrease, and then the tumor grew back again, and then they had to go back on it and went back down. So it does respond again when you go back on, but um, there is that um, growth or not rebound growth, but growth after it's um, pulled off. Um, all the studies that I showed you, the phase one, phase two, did um, ultimately lead to the FDA approval of selumetinib for plexiform neurofibroma. So it is something you can prescribe um, with the indication that it's a pediatric patient. Um, so it has to be at least two years of age um, or older. They are capsules. They have to be swallowed. So it can't really be given um, to anybody younger. People will ask me, can we just dissolve it or crush it or put it in applesauce? No, it has to be swallowed. So this is one that you can't do that with yet. Um, 25 milligrams per meter squared twice, twice daily, and it's supposed to be on an empty stomach. Um, and then there's just a, a guideline where if you have hepatic impairment, you should decrease the dose a little bit. Um, and then this is just showing the different capsule sizes that are available. Um, and then this is actually, so within that phase two study, there was another arm that actually looked at patients who did not have morbidity. So the arm that I just showed you all the data on, those patients had morbidity coming into it, weakness, disfigurement, um, pain, some sort of a... Um, something associated with a tumor. But we also looked at patients who did not have morbidity. So these are patients who had large growing tumors with the potential for morbidity, but nothing that was actually there yet. Um, and even in those patients without the significant morbidity where there's that potential, we saw a really good response. So 72% of the patients had a um, PR, um, and you also saw... Um, Again, this is the, the shrinkage in, in the patients without that morbidity. And I can tell you um, from treating these patients, they come in saying they have no symptoms, but you put them on treatment and all of a sudden they feel much better. And it's not something they can really describe, but um, they, they overall feel better when they're on treatment. Um, so there is something there um, with the, even without that weakness or the morbidity, there's something there with the, the treatment and the improvement you can see. 
Um, Mertamatinib is another MEK inhibitor that's being used now um, and is in trials for the NF1-associated plexiform neurofibromas. Um, this is a phase two study that was done. Um, there was about a 42% response rate with this. Um, Toxicity-wise, it was actually pretty well tolerated, similar to the um, selumetinib. Um, there were no discontinuations due to dose-limiting toxicity. Um, and overall, there were a few patients that needed dose reductions, um, but very similar um, response rates. And this is one that's actually being um, tried um, in, a, in another study, um, a phase two study, looking at children and adults um, with a, a mertimatinib. Um, Binamatinib is another MEK inhibitor um, that's being studied through the NF108PNOC10 um, trial. Um, this is a very similar trial to some of the other trials that we've seen. Um, the adult stratum was the first stratum to open, and then it opened it up to pediatric patients. Um, and so you can see stratum A and stratum B would be the adult versus the pediatrics. The dosing is just a little bit different. Um, adults have a set dose. Um, the pediatric patients had more of a, a dose late, uh, related to their um, size, so 32 milligrams per meter squared. Um, and, and you can see on here too that there was um, a stop um, point where if you didn't have at least a 20% decrease, uh, you did have, um, you were taken off of the study. Uh, this study also included um, functional outcomes and some PROs and um, the results of the study are still not fully um, published. So what are some of the indications for plexiform neurofibroma-directed treatment based off of everything we talked about? Um, so things that you need to consider. Is it progressive? What is the age of the patient? Is there morbidity associated with it? Is there pain? Do you have disfigurement? Is there a functional deficit? Um, and, or is there impending morbidity? So I um, can tell you as a clinician, when you have a patient who comes in and they may not have any morbidity at the moment, but they have a very large plexiform neurofibroma that's Croaching up on their spinal cord, it's really hard not to do anything. And so those are those patients where you can say impending morbidity. If that was to grow anymore and cut off that cord, it could be a major problem. Um, so those would also potentially be indications for treatment. In most cases, and I think this is really important, in most cases, stable tumors that are not causing morbidity should be observed. So if you see a tumor and it's not growing, not changing, and not causing any problems, it does not necessarily need to be treated. Because those tumors don't always progress. And we have patients that'll have tumors that just don't change their whole life. Um, it's just a matter of watching and making sure that you are able to capture those patients if it does start to grow and cause problems. Um, and then, of course, if treatment is indication, uh, you want to think about what is the best treatment to do. So surgery is still an option for some patients, and some patients it's actually easier for them. If you have something that can be taken out completely and it's gone, they might prefer that. Um, it's, um, medical treatment is then, of course, the, the other option. Um, and then are there other considerations or things that you need to think about um, in terms of that? So if you have a patient who's only going to take the med once a week, it's probably not the best thing for you to start. Um, and then we already talked a little bit about duration and how we uh, still don't really fully understand how long patients need to be treated, um, but we do know that uh, there is that potential for regrowth after stopping. Um, and then, of course, multidisciplinary team is needed. So it's not just one person's decision. Lots of people need to come in. Um, anytime I start a patient on treatment, I talk to the surgeons. I ask them, is this something you can take out? Um, I talk with other people just to make sure that we're making the right decision for the patient. Um, so these are just some take-home points here. Um, so the existing therapies are limited, um, but we do have MEK inhibitors now, and then there's also that tyrosine kinase inhibitor that we talked about that can cause shrinkage and help with the pain and improvement of function. Um, these drugs do not cause complete resolution in plexiform neurofibromas, so that's important for the families to know. It's not going to go away. It's just going to get a little bit better. Um, and the effects seem to last as long as you're taking the drug. And then right now, selumetinib is the only one that is approved for treating. Um, so looking a little bit at optic pathway gliomas, uh, treatment landscape there. So if a MEK inhibitor or some of these treatments are going to work for a plexiform neurofibroma, the question would be, can these also work for optic pathway gliomas? Um, so this is also looking at the similar types of treatment options. Surgery is not usually used for optic pathway gliomas. The only exception would be if it's isolated to an optic nerve and it's causing significant proptosis, um, then you could uh, potentially do surgery. Radiation therapy, again, is something that we try to avoid. There's a lot of post-radiation toxicity that you can see. And then, of course, there's the carbovincristine that's been used for many, many years um, and is actually still used and still quite successful for a lot of patients. Um, so this is uh, sort of the standard of care um, right now. 
There aren't any standard of care second lines, but there are some availabilities. Um, Vimblastine, for example, is something that you could use for second line. Bevacizumab is something that you could potentially use for a second line therapy. Um, and then now we're looking, of course, at the molecularly targeted agents like the MEK inhibitors. And then mTOR inhibitors also been used um, for some of the gliomas and did have some response rates. So you can see on there that there were... Um, there was one complete response, um, a couple of partial responses, and mostly stable disease uh, with the mTOR inhibitors. And that actually works on a similar pathway. So there's a RASMAP kinase pathway, and then there's the mTOR pathway right next to it, and the signal hits, and it can go either pathway. So you're actually just targeting one of those um, other pathways. Um, so is MEK inhibitor potentially strategy against the low-grade gliomas? Uh, so this has been looked at in a PBTC phase two trial of selumetinib in kids with uh, recurrent low-grade gliomas and NF1, as well as um, patients who did not have NF1, and they did have a response rate of about 40%, so it does help, um, most certainly. Um, in terms of visual outcomes, um, they did see improved visual outcomes in a couple of um, patients, so they did, they did um, outcomes based off of eyes, not patients, so I guess it's um, two eyes, stable was in 16 eyes, and nobody had worsened vision, which is important, because um, actually with the carbobincristine trial, they did have some patients who had worsening vision even on treatment. So this is great to see. Um, and then the last thing I'll talk about is treatment for MPNSTs. And so MPNSTs are definitely tricky. They're a little bit harder than some of our low-grade tumors. Um, surgical resection is, is still by far what we need to aim for with um, wide margins if possible. So you, when you have an MPNST, you go for surgery um, no matter what. Um, and you just do get the best resection you can as long as you don't have or without um, horrible morbidity. Um, radiation therapy, um, I would say it's still used quite often with MPNST, oftentimes because there's really not much else that we can do, and we know that it can at least hold it stable for a while. Um, chemotherapy, again, it's not universally agreed upon. There are some things that work sometimes, there are some things that don't. So oftentimes with MPNSTs, you're going to try it, and if it helps, it helps, and if it doesn't, you move on, because um, it's not necessarily going to be um, the, the perfect treatment. Um, and then there are also some, or multiple trials of uh, targeted anti-cancer therapies, many of which have been disappointing, I guess is a strong word, but um, not as successful as we had hoped that they would be, um, and progression-free survival against, um, among MPNST patients in these targeted phase two studies is generally around two months. So um, it, it really is not um, something that we've made a lot of uh, progress on yet. But there are some new trials that are coming out um, that, of course, are including including MEK inhibitors, some other drugs that are um, encouraging, hopefully. Um, and so this is just showing preclinical data, looking at MPNSTs and MEK inhibitors. You can see that when you treat with a MEK inhibitor and MPNST cell lines, um, there is improved, or there is um, increased cell death, and then there's also prolonged survival in mice that have um, treatment with a MEK inhibitor. Um, and then looking at some of the um, patient phase uh, two studies, um, there are some studies now looking at solumetinib with mTOR inhibitors um, to see if that potentially could treat the MPNST. So I think it's um, important to keep in mind that MEK inhibitors alone are not going to treat an MPNST. You really need to do combination therapy. And what we're trying to figure out is what the best combination therapy is. Um, and this is just a, a trial that was done with a MEK inhibitor selumetinib and serolimus for MPNSTs, um, just showing, again, that, um, you know, this is a possible treatment, um, and they did have seven patients um, with no further accrual um, because none of those patients responded. Straight to the case. Okay, so the first is an um, eight-year-old girl with um, known NF1, familial, and um, a very extensive, as you can see from the imaging, um, right face, orbit, and neck, plexiform neurofibroma. There had been multiple surgical debulking procedures done over the years, as you can see, between ages two and age seven. She now presents, and the question is, would you treat this person's tumor, presumably with a MEK inhibitor? Give you a second to think about that. Now let's go through the sort of algorithm that you heard a few minutes ago. The first question, is this tumor progressive? Turns out, no, it was not. It's extensive, for sure. Um, but over the previous 18 months, it had not shown signs of growth. Is there morbidity associated with it? Well, definitely there is. A significant visual impairment, particularly on the right side. 
uh, obvious disfigurement. Um, there's um, compression of the auditory canal, impairing hearing. Uh, there's difficulty with um, chewing. And airway compression necessitated a tracheostomy, so significant associated morbidity. Is it surgically resectable? Well, obviously not. There had been several, as you heard, debulking procedures, but not um, really making major impact given the extraordinary extent of this tumor. It's pretty obvious that it's not going to be fully resectable. And then are there medical treatments or uh, potentially clinical trials? Um, Are there particular contraindications to using a specific therapy um, things like cardiac disease, ophthalmologic disease, excluding optic pathway glioma, um, or things like glaucoma, and is she able to swallow capsules whole? And then an important point, duration of therapy needed to get an effect. Um, The time to seeing significant improvement in tumor volume can be 6 to 12 months. So if you're looking at an immediate cord compression, there simply isn't time um, to wait that long and Surgery is the necessary option in that case. Um, But if you're able to deal with more sort of chronic treatment, um, then a medication might be appropriate. And in fact, the decision was made um, to start this child on selumetinib, emphasize the importance of decision-making that is shared between a multidisciplinary team and, of course, the, the patient and the family. Um, the second case is a, a case of a 16-year-old patient um, who had a disease that progressed into an MPNST. Um, so this is thinking at something that's a little bit more aggressive. So here we have a 16-year-old male, um, also has familial NF1, and had a known left thigh plexiform neurofibroma, but was quite small and never really caused any problems, and he was asymptomatic until about three months before he presented to clinic. Um, At that visit, he was noted to have new left leg foot drop, um, left leg weakness, and had some pain impacting um, mobility. And there was a firm mass of the leg, um, as well as some possible um, weight loss. So did some imaging, and there actually had never been any imaging of the plexiform neurofibroma in the past, and so we didn't have anything to compare it to, but uh, you can see on this uh, picture that there's a quite large, extensive mass of the uh, left thigh um, that um, is sort of shown here with the, the STIR imaging, um, and then over here with contrast, you can see that there's also a pretty strong contrast enhancement um, associated with that. So looking sort of at the same type of an algorithm that we did with the last case, um, is this tumor progressive? Um, The answer would be yes, absolutely. We went from a barely palpable mass to something that's large, firm, um, in a very, very short time frame. So um, three, maybe six months uh, period of time. Is there morbidity associated with this? Yes, definitely. Um, Patient had weakness and had some pain. And would you start treatment now, or is there any other workup needed first? So this is one of those where you have to stop and think, should I just put this patient on a MEK inhibitor, or should I do something else first? And um, certainly given the short period of time that it grew, as well as the the firmness of the mass, um, this is one where you would want to do an extra workup just to make sure it's not something other than a plexiform neurofibroma. Uh, So we did do a PET scan. And you can see here, this is the um, results of the PET scan. And um, so this is showing the the thigh lesion lighting up right here. And then this patient also had a um, metastatic lesion to the lung at uh, presentation. Um, And then after that, uh, we did a biopsy um, to confirm. I mean, we knew it was an MPNST, but just to confirm, um, but also to get some um, molecular characteristics of the tumor to see if that could help us with our treatment. Um, So what would be the the management of this patient, and how is it different from the last patient? So could you consider surgery? Um, Is the tumor resectable without reasonable morbidity? Um, The answer is possibly. Um, So honestly, it was really big, large, and and involving a lot of the nerves. Um, So we knew that if we did a complete resection, the patient probably was going to lose function on that side. Um, So we took as much of it out as we could, but there was just a little bit of tumor that was left behind. Um, And then, of course, maximal surgical resection is recommended for these patients, so you really want to try and get as much out as possible. 
Um, what about chemotherapy and or radiation therapy? Um, so it can definitely be considered as frontline therapy in these patients. You can do it actually before surgery to see if you could shrink it down a little bit, or you can do it after surgery. For this patient, we did both. We did a little bit before surgery, um, did not have a response to the chemotherapy. We then went to surgery, and then after that, we tried a different type of chemotherapy and had a, a slightly better response with that. Um, and then clinical trials. Um, so this is a good option for patients, um, especially if you have a recurrent MPNST that hasn't responded to anything else. Um, and an example would be the mTOR MEK inhibitor combination therapy, which this patient actually received. Um, but there are other clinical trials out there certainly to consider for your patients. Um, so for an MPNST, um, the multiple option or multiple options should be considered um, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, um, and then of course you're um, going to bring in clinical trials here as well. At this point, we uh, go to question and answer, and, I, and um, there are some questions that have been entered over the course of the past hour. I don't know if we'll have time to get through all of them, but try to do what we can. The first is: it possible to present to prevent? orthopedic complications, not that I'm aware of, as it, it's certainly important to be watching for them. And there are treatments that can be used, as I mentioned, bracing the leg, say, to try to avoid fracture. It is worth noting that osteoporosis is more common in people with NF1, and low vitamin D levels, for some reason, are common, and it's recommended to monitor vitamin D and supplement it. But I can't tell you that, that necessarily prevents um, the potential orthopedic complications, such as um, tibial dysplasia, or scoliosis. Second question, are response rates, presumably to MEK inhibitors, different based on plexiform neurofibroma location? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So we did look at that specifically with the, um, the phase one, phase two sprint trial um, of selumatinib, and we did not find a difference based on location. Um, but I think it's important to note that that's a small number of patients. Um, and so as we treat more and more patients, we may find that there's slight differences in response. Then there's a question about um, the response of coming off therapy as patients uh, transition after puberty and have stable disease. I think you sort of alluded to this um, a bit in your talk. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, so we've definitely found that um, for patients who are coming off of treatment who have sort of maxed that, um, or reach that um, potential for growth. So generally, plexiform neurofibromas will grow well into your adult years, but um, for females and males, um, once you reach your 20s and 30s, um, you usually see decrease of that, that growth potential. And so um, for some of our patients where we've put them on treatment and gotten them into their 20s and then pull them off, they do tend to have a little bit less growth than if we were to put them on treatment and pull them off just before they hit puberty. So I think it's, um, I think that's sort of what the question's asking, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a consideration in terms of where the child is in their um, growth and development when you're pulling them off of a MEK inhibitor. And I think you partially answered this in your talk, but it, it's asking about the potential for using MEK inhibitors in MPNST, that you did address, but it also asks about in patients with or without NF1. Yeah, so um, we are looking at MEK inhibitors in patients who do not have NF1 and MPNSTs as well, um, and it's very similar to what we're seeing with NF1. MEK inhibitors alone are not going to be the treatment to use, but um, there are likely some combinations that um, will hopefully benefit these patients at some point. All right, so next it asks, um, do patients with NF1 and a family history of the condition tend to have more or less severe symptoms? For the most part, there isn't a big difference in terms of severity, whether it's a new mutation or a familial um, inheritance, because ultimately the mutations are the same. Um, there could be a slight bias in one sense, um, which is that some of the most severe, which would be the large deletions, also have a tendency in some ways to interfere with the ability to reproduce, mainly be, because probably of the intellectual disability and the, the burden of disease we have seen, actually, parent-to-child transmission of these large deletions. But I suspect there is a bias that um, because of the severe condition, it's less likely to be transmitted in large families, whereas other mutations that are less likely to interfere with reproduction are, um, in some respects, associated with milder disease in, in the family. But with the exception of, the, of just a few instances, for the most part, it's very difficult to predict severity based on whether it's a sporadic or um, familial case. 
then it's um, how quickly can certain NF1 symptoms such as skeletal progress and become more severe in nature? For the most part, you know, the skeletal um, features, or and I would say this is probably true for, for most features with the exception of the malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, are slowly progressive, you know. Watching a um, plexiform neurofibroma grow is sort of like watching the hour hand of a clock move. Um, it is not something that is going to be visibly different from one day to the next. Over time, there can be significant growth, especially, it seems, in, in childhood. The skeletal dysplasias, similarly, um, tend to progress very slowly. And um, on the one hand, that means you have time to kind of thoughtfully decide what treatment options are available and, and when and whether to implement them. On the other, um, there is a potential for complacency to, to set in and you really do need to be vigilant for these. Um, but for the most part, I think things, with the exception of the malignant growths, um, tend to be fairly slowly progressive. I don't know if you have any... Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Okay, next... Um, are there any patients for whom you might recommend more aggressive screening for plexiform neurofibromas? I guess my answer would be the, the individuals with those large deletions that have a deletion of the entire NF1 gene, actually about 1.4 to 1.5 million base pairs, which takes out multiple genes to either side, including some that are associated with increased risk of malignancy. They do seem to have about a double frequency of malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor as compared with um, other individuals with NF1. So increased vigilance, I would say, is especially important in those individuals. There are some mutations. They tend to be missense and splicing mutations that tend to be associated more often with um, tumors that occur at nerve roots and can compress the spine and can do that fairly insidiously. And it's actually somewhat deceptive because many of these people don't have a big burden of cutaneous neurofibromas. And then you look at an MRI and you can be amazed at the degree of um, spinal and, and nerve involvement. Um, and those individuals, I think, also bear scrutiny, particularly for um, cord compression. Yeah. The only other thing I would add is that there's a lot of evidence that the higher your tumor burden, the more likely you will develop an MPNST. So uh, patients with a tumor burden over 3,000 should definitely be monitored for MPNSTs or even, I mean, the higher it gets, the more your risk is. Okay. And then it's, um, how quickly do you see tumor responses and improvement in pain or symptoms with MEK inhibitor treatment? Yeah, it's variable um, depending on the patient. I've seen it as fast as two weeks, though, um, especially improvement in pain and functionality. And so I think it can anywhere from two weeks to some patients take four to six months. Um, so it's, it's dependent on the patient. Then uh, this question, what was the treatment for management of the dermatologic toxicities? Yeah, so that, that could be a whole hour lecture. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot to do with that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of guidance now that's been published. Um, the rashes are not fun. They're horrible um, sometimes, and there's a lot of management. I mean, bleach baths are a savior for a lot of patients, um, making sure that you're getting on top of things quickly. I start every adolescent on a medication, oral medication for acne, before I even start them on the MEK inhibitor now, because otherwise they get acne from head to so I think it's, um, it's a really great question, but it's, it's definitely a lecture in itself. The skin toxicity can sometimes be tricky. And then how have you counseled patients on adherence and, or persistence in taking oral therapy? Yeah, so I think um, it's, it's definitely something that we have to consider as well. And I, I, this is probably our last question, but um, the patients actually will oftentimes... To take care of that themselves. I think so. At the beginning, we'll say it's important for you to take this every single day. You're not going to get the response unless you take it every single day. But eventually, the patients actually are feeling so much better that they are the ones that regulate that, and they are the ones that are making sure they're taking their their medication every day. And I have kids who have plexiforms that have autism and really are non-communicative, and they will not take their ADHD meds for anything. But this medicine, they will not miss. <laughs> um, and so I think it's there's something about how it helps them. Um, that, that sort of drives that compliance. But um, it is important at the very beginning to make sure that you have a family and a child that's willing to be compliant because you can't see response without that. Okay, we are actually at the yeah. bottom of the hour. There's one last question. Do we have time to do that one last one? 
Quickly, yeah. Well, it has to either be quickly or it'll take us all day. Um, it says, what are your thoughts on baseline imaging? And um, the consensus recommendations are not to do baseline imaging, but to use clinical indications. You know, it, it's possible over time we'll learn that treatments exist that will actually prevent the growth of these tumor, tumors to begin with, which will be the subject of, we think, an upcoming clinical trial. And if that's true, it could change the equation. For the moment, um, we tend to use imaging for clinical indications. Mm -hmm. Yep, and I would say with the exception of the microdeletion patients, I will sometimes, well, I'm more likely to do baseline imaging on those patients just at the get-go. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. <clears throat> this activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YBF 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals.